Welcome to the Intravitreal Injection Podcast, a patient-focused series where Dr. John Pitcher explores different perspectives on the most commonly performed medical procedure in the world. Thank you for joining me on the Intravitreal Injection Podcast. Uh, this is your host, Dr. Pitcher, and it's my pleasure to welcome a special guest to the podcast, one of my fantastic patients who's been with me for many years. Um, we're going to call her Carol just for the sake of anonymity. Um, thank you for joining me, Carol. You're welcome. Nice to be here. Um, so I wanted to first start off by asking you a couple questions that I ask every patient who's a guest, and that's number one, uh, do you remember about when your first injection was, you know, how many years ago or Maybe you have a specific, more specific recollection. And then approximately how many injections have you gotten since? And um, also your age and what diagnosis you get the injections for. Okay. Um, I, I've been getting the injections for about five years. I noticed a big change in my vision about a year before that. <clears throat> and... Um, I was actually seeing a doctor for glaucoma and cataracts, but I knew there was something more going on. So after insisting, my doctor sent me to you, and you discovered the macular degeneration, and which I was really happy to get catch it early because my father went blind with it within a year. Uh, 25 years ago, they didn't have treatments, so it, I've been terrified. Of, you know, that I would be get it get it all these years. And I am 68 years old, so I started when I was about 63. Um, and I've just been thrilled with the results because I've maintained my vision. I, I can read. I read a lot uh, on the computer, not so much books anymore, but, uh, you know, I can still drive at night and uh, drive, just driving, period. Uh, it's a huge, huge uh, plus. Um, I... I've told you before, you know, you're a huge success story, and um, on the eye chart, you, you consistently measure pretty close to 20-20 in both eyes, you know, having had injections, um, you know, for several years, you know, five years or so, and I think you're getting them about every six weeks, is that correct? Yes. <clears throat> I think there was a time when we were able to extend them out maybe seven, eight weeks, but then we, we brought it back, and consistently, it's been pretty much every six weeks. And I think the benefit of this, you know, is it goes beyond just your quality of life. Clearly, there are things that you wouldn't have been able to do um, at this point if you lost vision uh, from from macular degeneration. And uh, kudos to you for sticking with the injections. I think it's really made a huge impact on the quality of your vision. And some patients ask me things about the, um, you know, the cost or what, you know, what, why do we continue doing these if they're, you know, either expensive for the patient or for society in general? But studies continue to show that if patients lose vision, um, you know, there's a much larger impact, um, you know, to, to the greater um, society just from pa patients losing independence and, you know, both direct and indirect costs uh, from caregivers and so on and so forth. So, um you know, that's something that's that's really important for patients to know. And, and, you know, we've had discussions, you and I, about how often you get the injections and, you know, kind of customizing it 
for you, and you know we've kind of settled into a, a pattern that's really working well. Um, so you mentioned reading, uh, driving, uh, computers. You just said you just got a new iPad. Is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> so at least, <laughs> even though tech, technically it's challenging, at least your your vision is good enough that you can can use it. Absolutely, because I I can't be without it. I I'm addicted to my computer. Yeah. <laughs> I don't use it many many hours during the day, but I reference it and I you know I uh, look up articles, research the things I'm interested in. I shop. I help other people with, with their business uh, you know issues, with, whether it's calling doctors or setting up appointments or whatever. And I also take care of my 94 year old mother which I wouldn't be able to do if I wasn't independent. And you mentioned your dad went blind from, from macular degeneration. So at the end of his life, you know, 20, 25 years ago, uh, or whenever he did go blind from it, um, it sounds like that was a major issue. He, what kind of things did he lose the ability to do? Well, he was an avid reader, and so that was a huge loss for him, and he wasn't able to do that. He had to go to the audio books. Which are, you know, it's nice, but it's just not the same as reading yourself. Yeah. And, uh, of course, he couldn't drive, and he was he was very um, crafty. He could make anything, so he couldn't do any any of those kinds of things. Uh, he used to love to dance, and they sort of had to quit doing that. And uh, just everything, it just really impacted his life in a big way. It was really, really bad. And seeing him go through that really gave you the perspective an appreciation for you know being able to maintain your vision oh yeah and they you know they didn't have anything back then they didn't have injections they i don't even know it was very limited and even then it, whatever treatments they had were unproven you know so it was just pretty much a a given that you were going to lose your eyesight if it started in on you well, thank you for sharing your, your story, and I hope this helps other patients to realize the significant value and uh, impact that the intravitreal injections can have, specifically for macular degeneration, but for many different diagnoses. And I appreciate you coming on, and I look forward to having you on in another episode in the future. Well, I appreciate you giving me the time, and I would encourage anybody that's, that's on the fence about it or maybe a little scared or whatever to continue with it because the benefits, you know, once you lose it, you can't get it back. And right. that's the thing you need to remember. So just keep it, keep up with it. It's, you know, gives you the freedom to live your life the way you want. Well, thanks again and take care. Thank you, doctor. Clearly, intravitreal injection have enormous value for each individual patient in improving their vision and improving their quality of life. Now let's hear from an expert on how intravitreal injections provide value to all of society. So it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Andrew Moshvegi. Uh, Dr. Moshvegi is a uh, retina specialist at the University of Southern California Roski Eye Institute. He's an associate professor of clinical ophthalmology the director of clinical trials and the director of their fellowship programs there. And he's also an MD and uh, MBA. I thought it'd be um, a great opportunity to talk about the value of intravitreal injections uh, to society. And Dr. Moshvegi was the lead author on a recent paper 
in OSLI Retina, um, which discussed this topic. So thank you very much for joining me, Dr. Moshvegi. My pleasure to be here, John. So as I always do with retina specialists, I, I um, ask you a couple quick icebreaker questions. So what, when did you give your first intravitreal injection and how many have you, uh, approximately how many have you given since then? Sure. So I was a fellow at Baskin Palmer Eye Institute. Uh, first year there was 2003. And that was when I carried out my first intravitreal injection. First, you know, in our sort of fellow continuity clinics that we had, um, but also uh, spending time with my mentors, uh, faculty mentors. That was 2003. And, you know, back of the napkin sort of calculation, I roughly somewhere uh, between 40 and 50,000 injections. And tell me a little bit more about the first injection. You were at the, um, you know, the epicenter of the development of anti-VEGF injections. How was that? What was that like being there when it all started? Well, you know, for me, it all seemed normal at the time. I didn't know any better that, uh, but I, I, I quickly began to notice when we were in the clinical setting treating most patients with vertiporfin photodynamic therapy or PDT, we would do like, I don't know, 10 to 15 PDTs a day in Phil Rosenfeld's clinic. Um, and that's very labor intensive. We're getting a fluorescein angiogram on every visit. We didn't really do tons of OCTs at that time. It wasn't such a driver. It was more fluorescein angiography. And it was very cumbersome setup and uh, process. Uh, very quickly began to see the potential value of anti-VEGF therapy um, because the marina and anchor trials were uh, ongoing at that time. We would see some of those patients um, as part of our clinical responsibilities. And so you very quickly began to see that it was, you know, uh, a much more efficient way of uh, treating patients um, if it worked. And, you know, we were blinded, of course, we didn't really know. But we had uh, an inkling, perhaps, that it was potentially a much more efficacious than what we were using with photodynamic therapy. And what became very interesting at the time was we were studying intravenous bevacizumab because it was available that way intravenously. And uh, Phil Rosenfeld, Stefan Michaels, and some other colleagues of mine, we carried out a study called the SANA study looking at systemic avastin for neovascular AMD. And because of the whole blood retinal barrier uh, issue, we thought that giving it, uh, many people thought giving an anti-VEGF agent systemically would not penetrate uh, the eye appropriately enough to have a therapeutic benefit. Um, but in fact, in our pilot prospective study, we saw visual acuity curves and OCT central retinal thickness curves that we're now very familiar with from the intravitreal studies of anti-VEGF agents. Um, now, that was a proof of concept study showing that intravenously delivered anti-VEGF agents were, were very efficacious, but they had their drawbacks in terms of systemic arterial hypertension and thrombophilic events and stroke that we had to be aware of. 
but at least showed proof of concept at least that this FDA approved drug that was already available, i.e. Avast and um, would uh, be a potential therapeutic candidate for neovascular AMD. And we later had the opportunity to treat the very first patient uh, with both neovascular AMD and then a separate patient with central retinal vein inclusion with Anne Fung um, and saw very uh, amazing results that uh, were later reported. So at the time, you know, you didn't have really the ability to appreciate where we'd be, you know, almost 20 years later, which is, you know, the revolution that has resulted in, uh, you know, mammoth improvements in patients' vision and, and certainly large uh, progress as far as how we treat, you know, previously blinding eye conditions. And one of the questions I get a lot, um, you know, from patients is, why are we doing this? This is, you know, expensive. I feel like I'm potentially you know, burdening uh, society with, with getting these injections. And it's really quite clearly the opposite. You know, I had the opportunity to interview a patient who's maintained 2020 vision for many years uh, with these injections and been able to continue doing a lot of things uh, to take care of herself and, you know, independence that she wouldn't have otherwise done. So why don't we start off by kind of framing the, the problem and you can talk a little bit based on some of the uh, data you collected in your paper about what currently are the leading causes of blindness and visual impairment in, in the United States? Sure. Sure. Uh, that's a, a, a nice segue, you know, the, uh, to address uh, that very common question that you uh, pose that you frequently get from patients is uh, going back to the whole concept of OCT utility um, I, I keep uh, readily available in my office an image of a normal OCT macula, you know, normal foveal depression. So I can very quickly show the patient, this is normal. This is what your eye looks like. And then, uh, so that visual representation of, of what's normal and, you know, how we're trying to keep it that way uh, resonates with patients. And I find that that's uh a very useful tool, um, especially when they see how they how abnormals their theirs looks at baseline when they're first presenting with wet AMD or DME or cystoid macular edema from central retinal vein occlusion. And yeah, these are the types of conditions that often lead to uh, blindness. We're not just talking about visual disability in our paper. It was really more the extreme of the spectrum. Uh, you know, we're talking about true uh, legal blindness. Uh, and what we found is that, you know, not surprisingly, uh, neovascular AMD, diabetic macular edema, and proliferative diabetic retinopathy, the more severe forms of diabetic retinopathy, were the types of diagnoses that were uh, driving legal blindness uh, in the United States, um, at least in the contemporary time frame. Um, and this is despite all of the amazing um, uh, strides we've made in the, not only the ocular care of these conditions, but also uh, systemic treatments as well as increased awareness by the public and general practitioners of uh, the importance of managing these conditions. 
So we may be preventing some of these cases of blindness with intravitreal injections, but it sounds like there's a possibility that by doing a better job with injections and um, you know identifying patients earlier, we may be able to prevent even more cases. Absolutely. You know, there's several points to bring up here. One of them is that uh, similar to your 2020 patient who's benefited uh, so obviously well from these injections over the years, comes to you with this question who, you know, she sort of feels like a burden on society for getting these very expensive treatments and for taking up chair time and office time with the very busy doctor in the clinic, seeing all the other patients that she might feel needs your services more than she does. Uh, we have to let those patients know, look, you know, as amazing as these treatments are and as much of a paradigm shift as they have proven to be, uh, one major drawback of these treatments is their relatively short duration of action vis-a-vis their remaining uh, life expectancy. Um, so, you know, the average life expectancy in the United States is somewhere around 77, 78. But if you make it to 78, the average life ex- additional life expectancy is another 10 years. Um, the average age of onset of neovascular AMD in the U.S. is 78. So if you make it to 78, you, you, know, you can expect to be diagnosed with way AMD around that time if you are destined to get that diagnosis. And that you might be alive for another 10 years. And if that's uh, between six and nine injections per year in the first year, six and seven in the second year, and so on and so forth, uh, the number of injections adds up. Um, So that's one thing is that we have to explain to patients that this is a treatment, not a cure. Uh, You won't be done. You won't be done. And hopefully you never will be done because you'll still be benefiting from the treatment. The two times we sort of stop treatment aren't good. (laughs) It's usually when the patient is no longer with us, um, not because of the injections, but just because of natural causes, or the patient has failed to follow up, lost to follow up uh, for whatever reason, or due to, uh, what's the word, it's no longer felt to be helpful for the patient because they've developed atrophy or some other uh, comorbidity, another ocular disease that has prevented them from realizing the benefit of these injections. But by and large, patients who are receiving the injection and, and they're doing well, uh, there's not a good rationale to stop them um, for at least for neovascular AMD. And I would say in general for most of the, the diseases Another problem, though, and this is more of a problem with diabetes than with AMD, is a lot of the patients that are losing vision are those who present really late to the doctor for the first time, and or they're never getting screened appropriately in the first place. Either they weren't told to go get screened uh, annually or even biannually, or they were told and they just didn't do it. We know that like only about 60% of the at-risk population gets appropriately screened for diabetes. And certainly if we catch someone with a little bit of mild diabetic retinopathy, that's going to be a much easier uh, goal uh, in terms of a much easier task of trying to prevent them from going blind than if they were presenting with high-risk 
advanced proliferative diabetic retinopathy with traction retinal detachments and so on. That latter patient, much more likely to, to go blind, even with prompt intervention at that point. Um, so certainly lack of access to healthcare or just uh, failure to seek um, healthcare is a major driver for irreversible bilateral blind blindness, which is the type of patients we were looking at in the study. And this, in aggregate, not only leads to direct costs for those patients that are substantial, that could have been avoided, um, you know, thousands of dollars or even tens of thousands of dollars on average per patient. But then when you look at all of the affected patients in our country over time, uh, it, it leads to uh, billions of dollars. Uh, you know, the direct costs um, are uh, subs- about a bill, $1.2 billion, and the indirect costs uh, approach $13 billion, um, at least in the 2020 timeframe. And we expect that number to substantially increase over the next several years. Yeah, it was interesting to me reading that the total cost, as you mentioned, from uh, neovascular age-related macular degeneration or wet age-related macular degeneration, diabetic macular edema, and proliferative diabetic retinopathy um, were in the range of $20 billion this year and estimated to triple uh, by 2050. Um, and yeah. so I think that really frames the problem when you're talking to an individual patient who, you know, the injections are, are you know, much smaller than that as far as cost uh, for hopefully preventing some of those direct and indirect costs. And could you could you kind of define the direct versus indirect costs just so uh, patients might understand that if, if they're interested? Sure. You know, it's... Um to frame this paper a little bit, we used publicly available data that was available from, you know, Medicare databases as well as publications. And we worked with a team of expert epidemiologists who have experience doing these economic models uh, to try to take as much information as possible, come up with an economic model that can help us figure out um, not only the sort of obvious direct costs, like, oh, let's add up how many injections of drug X they got on average over time and multiply that times X number of years with this number of patients for these diagnoses. And that's a more intuitive and obvious uh, thing. And we call that the direct cost. And that's not just um, the cost of the drugs and diagnostic tests and all that sort of stuff, uh, but also things uh, for patients with uh, legal blindness, uh, things like uh, the cost of uh, guide dogs and uh, the cost for other government programs that provide assistance with living and nutrition and income support and uh, employment support as well. So that's direct costs. And then indirect costs, you know, refer to... uh, Productivity losses, um, you know, change in uh, compensation, change in number of hours worked, um, as w- as well as other uh, tax implications. And that that when we start talking about indirect, anything that you talk about that gets away from sort of the direct costs starts to become a little bit nebulous and hard to wrap your your brain around. Um, 
even more uh, nebulous are sort of the um, intangible costs. And these are a little bit harder to explain. We started using economic terms like years of life lost um, and, and so on and so forth, using multiple uh, economic models to help us arrive at that quality adjusted life years so-called qualities which are sort of the economic unit uh, that we use to describe uh, intangible loss and you know you, you look at oh how much how many years of work did this person uh, not have access to by virtue of their uh, bilateral uh, legal blindness um, so when you start adding all these things up and you start providing relative proportions of impact from direct versus indirect versus um, intangible, then we start to come up with these numbers more on a macroeconomic scale where you can start talking about the billions of dollars of, of impact. And, the, and like you said, these are the most severe cases. So individual patients experiencing, you know, small drops in vision that keep them from doing things like reading and driving, you know, represent additional, you know, major impacts. So, well, you know, it, Oh, sorry to interrupt. I just want to highlight one thing. Once again, this paper, I think underestimates hugely the true economic impact of these conditions on society for the following reason. We're only talking about bilateral legal blindness and we both know that our AMD patients often aren't legally blind. You know, they might have 2080 vision in the better seeing eye, 2400 in the other eye. That patient's technically not legally blind, but, you know, they're not going to be driving a car. They're not going to be able to read the fine print on their telephone bill. And those are substantial visual disabilities that really this paper doesn't account for. A great point. Well, I think it's it's really uh, interesting, you know, to study to highlight these numbers, and I think patients will appreciate the fact that you know the injections they're getting are helping, hopefully, to prevent some of this cost uh, societal impact um, that these conditions have. And that's really what I wanted to kind of bring across was, as retina specialists, you know, we we want to improve each patient quality of life individually but on the on the large macroeconomic scale as you mentioned there is a benefit for patients getting these injections to prevent severe vision loss and um and so forth so that that's a great summary and i really appreciate you shedding light on this subject and giving us insight um and uh, appreciate appreciate you coming on and looking forward to potentially having you on again in the future Great. And thanks uh, so much for uh, coming up with this idea of sharing this type of information with our patients and their, their loved ones, because I think there's a lot of questions that they have and so many misconceptions. I enjoyed uh, Christina Wang's and Roger Goldberg's uh, podcast as well, and I felt like uh, we're kind of hitting all of the uh, various aspects of interventional injections from many different angles. So I think this is super helpful. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Intravitreal Injection Podcast. Please leave us a review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. 
follow us on Twitter at the IVI podcast. We hope you'll join us next time. Until then, remember, when it comes to intravitreal injections, there's more than meets the eye.